Welcome to the Chapter 49 podcast. We are recording this podcast during the late afternoon of Thursday, February 17th. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. I am Larry Lannon. I'm a retiree, and I do volunteer work communications-wise for NTU Chapter 49. Let me welcome our chapter president, Duncan Giles. He is uh, back with us once again. Thanks for joining us, Duncan. As always, Larry, good to be here. And if you're watching on the video, you can see we have a couple of guests. They are in, sitting in Washington, D.C. We have Ken Moffat, who's the Director of Negotiations nationally for NTEU, and uh, Doreen Greenwald, who's the Executive Vice President nationally for NTEU, really just one step below Tony Reardon, our national president. By the way, Doreen, uh, congratulations on your election to that job. Thank you, Larry. It's exciting to be in this new position. Well, and I want to bring both of you in because we have several questions for you. And I'm going to open up the questioning with this. We have this thing at IRS that is being described as the surge. When people think of surges, they unfortunately think of something military. In this case, it is a way for IRS, at least based on what the management is telling you, to try to work down a, a paper inventory of millions. I've seen all sorts of numbers uh, in the national media, in the tax media, I saw uh, a tax newsletter today that said virtually all of that paper inventory are originally filed returns that have just not been processed. So I, you know, I know that you have been asking a lot of questions. I don't know what kind of answers you're getting. So my first question is: this surge of bringing 1,200 people from their current jobs to another job, which will free people supposedly to work this paper inventory. Uh, tell us what you're hearing about that, and I'll ask Doreen to start. So what we're hearing is that the IRS finds itself in a very difficult position. They defined it as extreme. Um, not only do they have a backlog going back a couple of years, they've had to deal with a lot of the pandemic issues, the child care payments that they had to issue, the EIP payments, um, the numbers are all over the place, and I think Duncan will uh, share this, but, you know, when asked, it's even difficult to get a correct answer from the agency. They're not even sure from time to time, depending who you're talking to, what they're actually dealing with. And, and what it is, is um, a backlog of work, and I attribute it to lack of resources. This isn't anything new. The service has been starved for resources for a decade or more. The pandemic just heightened it and, and shined a light on it. Um, but we know for many years that they've struggled with uh, retention of employees, they've struggled hiring employees, and now it's come to fruition with all this backlog of work. And as employees um, aren't there to do the work, you get a surge because people don't, they can't answer the phones, they can't do the paperwork. And so what do people do? They call more and they write more. And so you're actually adding to the backlog. So here we are with the IRS trying to come up with some solution using the resources they have. And trust me, there is no excess of resources anywhere in the Internal Revenue Service to support this. And this is one of their ways of trying to come up with trying to put some type of resources towards this backlog. 
And you know, Doreen, as somebody who's worked as a union official and as a manager during my IRS career, I will tell you that it, I think this goes back 20 years of, of underfunding this agency. But I want to go to Ken. And Doreen touched on this, but I know you and other officials nationally at NTU keep asking the top management, just what is the size of this paper inventory? What does it consist of, if I can dangle a participle? What in the world is going on with this? And... Uh, you're not getting any answers. Uh, that must be very frustrating for you. I mean, the numbers that we've gotten um, have been all over the map, but they, they've talked about how in a typical year you have leftover adjustments inventory um, of X amount, and they usually have told us it's about in the ballpark of 500,000 cases to maybe a million, 500,000 or more. And in this past year, um, last tax year, it shot up to about four point, either four point, somewhere between four and five million adjustments inventory. So we're looking at, I mean, their problem is if you leave that work uh, undone while you start doing this filing season, then you're not going to get to it. Um, so really, what they're what they're looking at is reallocating resources from outside of wage and investment AM into wage AM to work uh, any work really, so that it can either draw down that adjustment itself directly with the folks that come in, or take calls so that the folks that um, are currently working the adjustments. NAM can work more adjustments. In other words, they don't have to split their time between telephones uh, and the paper inventory. And uh, you know, one of the things that's troubling about it is the the, the projection of the number of people that they could bring back, um, because they are not bringing back everyone who ever worked in AM. It's folks that worked in AM in the last basically two years, because there's a training element to it. If you haven't done the job in you know, three or five or eight years, it's going to be very hard uh, to bring people up to speed to be able to do it. So there's an off, there's a cutoff of two years. Um, and they're looking at about a thousand people, really a little bit over between a thousand and twelve hundred people. A lot of them are going to be from SBSE um, and bring them in from sometime at the end of this month through September 30th. And that's not going to resolve the entire um, inventory. In other words, it's only going to, they're only going to be able to draw down a portion of it. So this is, uh, this is a problem that seems like it could recur um, if they don't get additional hiring in there. I'm going to turn this over to Duncan Giles. Yeah, uh, Ken and Doreen, this is something, as as you know, that has been troubling me for quite a while. You know, one of the things when I asked, I've heard anywhere from two to 24 million documents and couldn't get a straight answer on exactly how many documents that they have. And like you said, it's a floating inventory. They always have some left over, but it uh, disturbed me deeply. But my understanding was when they declared this emergency was that it was going to be to draw down uh, this inventory. And we couldn't, I, to, at least to my mind, we couldn't get a straight answer from them 
on whether this, you know, the putting these folks back on the phone to try and get a little bit higher level of service is going to be a one-to-one. Are we going to be able to get somebody off the phone so they can work inventory? Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on that? I mean, from their initial discussion with us, they really didn't talk about phones. The primary focus of the search was to address the backlog. As we started asking more questions about, wait a minute, how are you putting people on phones? Some of the discussion led to the fact that the remote call sites don't have paper. And so they were looking to take away some of the call work that's being done in the centers move it to the remote sites so that people who are on the phones in the centers could then support the paperwork, kind of keeping everything status quo as far as phones. They're not looking to, at least my understanding, can to increase the, the level of phone service because it's low. It's not going to get any better based on the numbers they have. Um, but the idea was is to use the resources in the service centers to focus on the paperwork, move as many calls as they could to the remote sites where they can't do paper, and then have uh, those folks do the calls. Um, we just recently have pushed back at them and said, you know, it would be a great opportunity for you to spread some of that paperwork out. And if you could, in some remote sites, offer paper and give people opportunities to do overtime, you know, still do their calls, but if they wanted to volunteer to do overtime, you know, they might be able to get some more paperwork done than what their plan allows. Um, haven't heard back on that, but that was something we've raised. Would you like to address that, Ken? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's essentially what they've said. I mean, they, one of the problems, well, one of the one of the issues is when when IRS um, there's a portion of the statute that says that uh, under the management rights provision that says that agencies can take, quote unquote, whatever action is necessary in an emergency to accomplish the mission of the agency. And they've invoked this provision uh, to make to take these uh, actions. And um, it doesn't, when they, when they do it and spring it on us, it doesn't leave us a significant amount or sufficient amount of time uh, to do bargaining, uh, which we're gonna have to try to do on a very expedited basis. Um, it leaves much to be desired in terms of the communication of it out to employees um, because a lot of employees and a lot of chapter leaders have many, many questions um, that, are, that have gone unanswered. Um, you know, one of the big issues is whether or not um, certain people should be accepted from having to be detailed into AM you know, for the next eight months. Um, and that's an issue that we're, we're broaching with them. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of issues. The other issue is what happens to the workload of the, of the folks that get detailed uh, into AM? What happens to their work for the next eight months? And what's gonna happen to them when they return to their job and now they have work that uh, has been piling up for eight months um, because it's not like their job um, is going to end, right? They're going to have to go back to their original position at some point. Um, so there's a there's a lot of issues, um, but I think it really uh, it, it kind of highlights the point that that Doreen made, which is 
you're looking at an agency that has been um, without sufficient resources for um, a long time. And it was probably just a matter of time if you don't have proper staffing um, that, that you're going to have a problem with meeting the demand. You know, I started reading uh, chapter president's memos back to, as far as the late 1980s when Bob Tobias was national president. And I've read a lot of them, yet I read a recent one from Tony Reardon, which basically used the word nonsense. I'd never seen that before, but he was referring to assertions by certain management officials at some of these town hall meetings for these people being moved around that NTEU had been informed of this and was on board with this. Doreen, let me give you a chance to set the record straight on that. Absolutely. So as, as Ken explained about the emergency provision that they've declared that they're in an emergency situation. First and foremost, we have been meeting with the agency, started out several times a week, then weekly, then bi-weekly on every COVID issue imaginable. They said nothing to us while these inventories continued to grow. And as Ken said, you know, usually they had anywhere between 800,000 to a million. Where was the contact with NTU when they hit 1.5, 2, 3, 3.5, 4, 4.5? They created this emergency. And it was really inappropriate because when they called us, they said, we have decided and we are going to do X. And that was to reassign these employees that have worked in AM back to AM. That was not something we were offered as a, what do you think of this idea? Could you give us some ideas? And what was really frustrating about it is they quickly rolled out meetings to the employees. They sent them emails and they, they rolled out meetings, giving the chapters very little time to coordinate to get to these meetings. And the managers had no answers for these employees. And so the managers were saying, go ask NTU. Well, management, you made this decision. You made this call. You should have answered these questions or had the answers to these before you even move forward with this program. And they have failed to do that. And so now we're trying to play cleanup to help employees who are asking valid, important questions about what's my pay going to be? How does this impact my awards? What about my appraisal? I put in for a new job. I need to have training. What if I lose my skills? What happens to me? So on and so on. So this has been a mess. And it's a shame because they should show employees a lot more respect than they did in this because the employees are the ones that are going to bail their asses out. You know, Ken, uh, Duncan and I are both alums of working on the telephone. We did that work, each of us, for many years. It's a tough job. It's even tougher today because of these issues you talked about, the underfunding of the agency and, and the COVID. All that has come together to make it an even tougher job with more angry people calling and so forth. And a lot of these people who are being detailed back onto the phones applied for other jobs because they wanted to get off the phone. Some of them even have health issues. So, Ken, can you kind of talk about that aspect of this, which I don't think the management uh, thought much about? They could lose some human capital. There are a lot of jobs out there. People could just leave the service. Yeah, yeah. That's Well, that's one of the things that happens when you uh, forge ahead with your own plan and you don't tell anyone about it. And you drop it on the, the union, the, you know, the exclusive representative of the employees at the last minute. Uh, that's one of the things that they're risking here 
is there, you know, whether or not there are certain people who, um, you know, did whatever they could to get out of AM in the first place. Um, and now they're going to force them to go back there, whether or not some of those folks say, you know, this is just not worth it uh, to me. Uh, and they leave. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if, if some people did that. Um, they have a problem, a huge problem with retention without any of this going on. Um, and we learned that most recently, uh, the extent of that anyway, um, at the last term table, which, uh, which we concluded last summer. And they have data that showed that uh, within the first two years of a new hire's career at the IRS, 45% of the employees leave the agency. And I mean, that's that's nearly one in two people that you hire, uh, you know, 24 months later, they're walking out the door. And so that's that's a problem. And, um, you know, it's, a, it's an issue that we talked about a lot at the table when we were talking about uh, the hiring procedures that we renegotiated last summer uh, to try to make it easier for the agency to bring more people in. Um, they also wanted to roll out uh, a program where employees could get a uh, bonus if they recruited people into the IRS, um, which was not that substantial. But, you know, that was part of the idea of, you know, we need as much help as we can to get people in the door. Um, so really the, you know, but agencies can only hire to the extent that they are uh, appropriated money to do that. So if Congress says your budget is going to be the same as it was last year, you're not going to be able to go out and hire 15,000 new people. You're just not going to be able to do it. Um, so they've been playing catch up with, uh, you know, attrition hiring to begin with. Uh, and then adding additional FTEs on top of that has been very difficult for them. I'm going to let uh, Duncan Charles uh, kind of wrap up this whole surge discussion. Yeah, I've, I've got a couple of comments on this because I, to be honest with you, I think it's extremely disingenuous of the agency to say this is going to be on getting the inventory down. And yet the vast majority of people are going to be going on to accounts management on the phones that they're calling back. And when asked directly, because I know this, because somebody right here on this podcast asked directly, is this going to be a one-on-one, one-for-one conversion? They were hemming and hawing about that and couldn't answer that question, among many others we presented. So it's extremely frustrating, as Ken and Doreen both alluded to, when we don't have enough money to hire, and that's out of the outside of the IRS's control, I understand that. But to make a knee-jerk decision that, you know, I'm I'm worried this is not the last surge. I'm worried they're going to be pulling some other things because I'm hearing whispers about this. And I'd like to know if Ken and Doreen are hearing anything as well, that they may be doing some more things to try and do this. And where does that leave the rest of the folks in the organization and how valuable is their work as well, because every job in the IRS is valuable. I understand we want to clear down the inventory, but at this point we're darn near rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic to try and accomplish this. And I don't think it's getting to what the IRS needs. And like I said, I'm just afraid that this could go further. So 
Um, Ken and Doreen, have you guys heard anything about that? Well, it's my understanding the taxpayer advocate in her conversation with Congress today alluded that there may be additional or a second surge. Um, so you're probably right, Duncan, something more is coming. We have posed that question to the IRS and said, are there other issues going on out there? And, you know, the answers have been vague. You know, we, there's been no decisions made, <laughs> nothing to share at this point. Um, but we've said to them, this, the way they rolled out the AM surge was wrong. It was, it was wrong. And they need to do better going forward. And we expect them to share that information with us timely and not repeat the same bad behavior. Any final comments on the surge from either one of you before we move on? I don't have any. Okay, I think we've uh, kind of we've we've talked that one uh, uh, backward and forward. Let's talk <laughs> about something else here because I Duncan and I talked a lot when you were in your national agreement bargaining last year, and one I won't say contentious, but certainly an issue between you and the management had to do with providing paper copies of the contract to uh, the members of our union, our people in our bargaining unit. Uh, yet that still hasn't. Ha Excuse me, that still hasn't happened. What are you hearing on that, Doreen? I'll let you start. Well, not only was it a discussion this last time around, it was a discussion the time before that. For a long time, um, they have viewed printing the contract as not being something they wanted to pay for. Um, in a $11 billion budget, it's really not that big of an expense to them. And when we always ask them, well, okay, so you're not going to give your managers a paper copy, right? Uh, they don't ever want to agree to that, obviously. So, um, you know, we put language in the contract this time around that they agreed to, to provide us paper copies. I'll, I'll turn it over to Ken on the status. I do know recently I saw some email traffic that they were establishing some um, distribution sites with the chapters about getting some of these uh, things that's usually done in advance, um, but I'll let you talk about the process. Yeah, the, the paper copies are coming. I mean, it's a brand new contract. Uh, a lot of it was renegotiated. Uh, we proved it. I think we're up to our sixth proof uh, where we're, uh, you know, looking for errors. Um, you have to cross-reference, you know, every everything that's referenced in the index and that type of thing has to be cross-referenced. One of the delays, uh, in addition to just making sure that it's accurate, uh, has been the IRS's printer um, went under, and there's been you know a couple of victims of uh, of COVID, and the contractors in the printing industry apparently are also subject to this. And on top of the, and on top of them having to go out and get uh, a new contractor, apparently because of the supply chain issues, the cost of paper and inflation, the cost of paper uh, has gone up dramatically. And um, we actually got a request uh, from IRS recently that we accept fewer copies of the contract than what we're entitled to uh, under the terms of the contract. And we said, uh, no, we, we'd like uh, all of the copies of the contract. Um, so yeah, that's that's where it stands. I you know we should probably have uh, uh, copies of the contract within the next 
six weeks, I would say. Five to six weeks. That's my hope. No. That's my hope. Okay, I'll turn this back to Duncan Giles. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that is amazing to me, uh, as Doreen alluded to, that in, you know, you've got an eleven dollar, eleven billion dollar a year budget that you don't want to provide paper contracts to employees, but oh we'll we'll give them to managers. But I and I'm sure other chapter leaders have had a large number of people ask, when are the paper copies coming? So I understand they're going to provide links electronically and things of that nature. But as usual, IRS uh, at the highest levels doesn't seem to understand what their employees want and need. And, you know, I know we pushed very hard to make sure that they did get that. They are going to get them. And, um, you know, as Ken also alluded to, this COVID supply chain thing is just wicked on every single level. And apparently paper is not immune. So folks are asking for contracts. They are coming. We are working on this. It's just one of those things that's going to take a while. They're going to like them when they get them. They're Absolutely. Very, they, well they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're, I think they're going to like them. Not just for the substance, but I, they're, they're good looking contracts, actually. I think. Well, you know, having, if they don't have any of, any of my pictures in it, that's, that's got to be good looking. <laughs> Why they have pictures in them now? I didn't know that. No, I, I must tell you, having been both an employee, union rep, and a manager, I I knew very few managers who ever opened up the contract. So I'm surprised that the you know the, the top management thought that was a big deal. I think if they went back to their uh, frontline managers, they'd find fewer of them use that paper copy than they than they There's think. A correlation between that fact and the level of uh, grievances that are filed by chapters. Yeah, yep. I think yeah, I think that uh, can't uh, can't can't argue with that. Uh, I'm going to ask about uh, return to office because uh, we have a new acronym RTO, and return to office is going to be the new plan, I guess, for whenever that happens. There's supposed to be a 30 day um, uh, notice on that. You have not received that yet. Uh, I'm just curious. So let me ask Ken to start this one. Uh, um, what are you hearing as far as return to office? Has the IRS shared anything with you lately that uh, might be of interest? We yeah, we are actually bargaining this. We just met with them today uh, for a, a session to negotiate uh, to discuss proposals. Um, in terms of the key information that everyone is looking for, uh, which is what's the date going to be? Um, the IRS has given us language that says. Uh, month, day, year, essentially a placeholder um, because they don't know, they have not decided yet what that what that day is going to be. Um, but you're right that they've agreed uh, that they're not going to give folks any less notice than 30 days before that happens. We're hopeful to wrap up a uh, uh, an MOU on it um, so that we can address uh, a number of the issues uh, that are important to employees, in, including um, trying to retain some of the flexibilities, expanded uh, telework for employees, uh, you know, like the max, expanded maxi-flex schedule and uh, that type of thing. I mean, I, I think that what they're likely going to do is they're going to say that the initial um, callback is going to be uh, in phase one, 
uh, and and that would um, probably in, uh, retain a lot of the folks on telework who are on telework. I would say that if anyone who is currently evacuated um, who plans to telework once they are directed to come back into work, that those folks should request a telework agreement and get it signed uh, and make preparations to get their training accomplished so that they're not caught uh, caught up in a position where, you know, they might have to be scurrying to get that done. Um, yeah, so that's, these are issues that we're talking about with them, you know, as we speak. Um, and, you know, hopefully we'll be able to get something done in the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, you know, Doreen, a thank you. You know, Doreen, uh, one of the biggest agencies going through this return to office is the Social Security Administration. And uh, I, NTU does uh, represent a small part of that agency. Another union represents most of the people who work at SSA. Yet I've been reading uh, in some of the federal employee press, Social Security is having a tough time with this. What, uh, what can we learn from what we know about their experience so far? You know, it's funny with Social Security, they've actually been slower at look at our TAC offices and how fast they move people back to those TAC offices. And we have some TAC employees who share space with Social Security and have benefited from working in those offices. Um, you know, obviously each, each um, agency runs things a little differently. You know, every agency off, you know, we can monitor that and see what, what things we can gain. All of the agencies need to take a step back and look at what gains they've made during this whole pandemic and really work with their employees to address the needs of those employees. The 30 days is just a start. Um, people have been out of the office for a period of time working successfully from home to suddenly just drop it and say, you got to come on back and act like that didn't happen is a mistake. And so I think there's a lot of benefits there to, to reach out, have this process. Like Ken said, you know, we've got some good people on the bargaining team raising a lot of these issues. So as they slowly start to work to RTO, return to the office, that we can address a lot of those things and address a lot of the concerns that employees have. So, Duncan, I know you have some comments and question or questions about RTO. Yeah, one of the main things that I'm hearing from is people who have been vaccinated are extremely concerned with sharing space with folks who aren't vaccinated. And that's just human nature and it is what it is. The other part of this is I think it's going to be very difficult, but it's management has to do this is they're going to have to police the physical spacing and the mask wearing where it's necessary. And I, you know, Doreen or Ken or both of you, It'd be interesting to hear what your views are on what management is saying or thinks they can or can't do about that issue. Well, I think throughout the entire pandemic, we've been clear with the agency that they have a role to play in policing those policies um, to keep other employees safe. It shouldn't be an employee's role. It should be a management role. I also think we've been pushing, at least in our conversations with OPM, a plan where we think it, it sets a good tone that the agency requires managers to report back earlier and be in the office working for a period of time before they call employees back. I think that 
would send a, a stronger message to employees that it's safe to come back because um, that's a concern that they have. As far as masking goes, you know, I caution you that, you know, everything in the world around us is changing quickly and, and the, the science is changing. The rules are changing. I saw a report this morning that the CDC is based on some of the decline in some of the numbers with Omicron, that they're reevaluating some of their stances. And a lot of the federal government's policies are based on CDC's recommendations. And so next week, they've already said the CDC is going to come out with new guidance, likely on masking. And so what does that look like? We don't know yet. And also uh, next week, I believe you have a briefing on the, the mandatory testing policy for those who are unvaccinated. Um, and so we don't know what their plan looks like there either. So there's a lot of things in play that are going to depend on CDC recommendations, what happens with the virus going forward. I mean, every month we're in a different place. And so um, we have to really look at that and you know, I, I don't want to say something today and say, hey, this is what we should do. And then tomorrow day, it's all off. So um, it's it's very fluid. Yeah, I would add that um, I think based on uh, the data that's coming in, that's reported on the number of cases uh, and, you know, either the weekly or the 14-day average and how far it's come down, um, it, it looks like it's going in the right direction um, in terms of, of lowering the risk um, of, of getting it because the, the numbers are going down so much. Hopefully that that, that will continue. Uh, and if it does, then you'll probably see some new policies out of CDC. Uh, but what it means for anybody that's going back to any website is that it's likely going to be a safer place than it was for example, in June of 2020, when they started recalling people into the campuses all across the country. Um, so yeah, that that and uh, you know the fact that they they could no matter what they could maintain certain policies, um, testing, you know, social distancing, um, mask wearing, etc. So if you have a um, you know if you have a significant decrease that it continues that way. Um, it, it should be, you know, I'm not a scientist, but it should be a lot safer than it was, you know, six months ago, five months ago, yeah. um, in terms of, you know, interacting, going back to work, that type of thing. Has the agency at all given you any indication as to how much it's going to cost to do this massive testing program once people return to the office? I've seen estimates for, you know, $5 million a week. $22 million a month. Has the agency shared any information about that with either one of you? Not, not specific dollar amounts. I mean, that's going to be linked to how many people are unvaccinated. Um, and how often they plan to test. And how often they plan to test. So you're looking at, you know, if you have 98% of your workforce is vaccinated, then, you know, that's uh, significantly less costly than if only 65% of your workforce is vaccinated. And then the other issue is whether or not, you know, what's the scope of the testing program in terms of, you know, if someone's a full-time or nearly full-time teleworker, um, you know, the frequency of the testing of those folks versus someone who doesn't have any portable work who has to come in to do their job uh, in a campus, um, yeah, yeah, and come in every day. 
um, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be, that's going to have, have a bearing on, on the cost. But it really, the, the biggest thing is going to be how frequently are they going to require the tests and what, how many, what are the numbers in terms of people that are going to be required to get it every week or every, you know, other week or every, you know, 24 hours before they come in that type of thing. And let me just clarify something um, Ken said. You know, obviously the testing rules, we're still waiting for IRS's plan. We don't know how often they plan to test, who they plan to test. There's been recommendations out there um, from the Safer uh, Federal Workforce Task Force, uh, but we're still waiting on the agency to make that recommendation. You mentioned full-time telework. I want to clarify that because somebody's going to watch us and say, I want full-time telework. <laughs> we all want full-time telework. That does not exist as we know it today. I mean, people are on outside telework doing maximum telework based on the evacuation notices. If there's a return to the office, it'll go back under Article 50 language, frequent telework or situational or, or, or ad hoc. And so I just wanted to, to caveat that, that there's not a new plan out there that we haven't shared with anybody. That was just but, a, but we need to let people know that NTU at the table very much pushed for that very thing but the agency said they could not do it and pushed back very hard. Yeah, and there's this there's this locality pay regulation yep. that that uh, that hinders. Uh, you know, there there's just no way to get around it unless the agency agrees to it. It's one of those things that um, there are agencies out there that have agreed to, it. and you have people that are working remotely, full time from uh, their home. And the agent in that situation, the agency has to make their home an official duty station. But absent the agency agreeing to that, then the case law basically says that the agency has a right to determine where you perform your work. And with that locality pay rule that says you have to come report into your official duty station twice a pay period, that's where you get the eight days out of the pay period that you can telework, but you can't telework 10 days out of the pay period. Yeah, and I think that that may be an issue, and I'm, I'm curious about how you may be dealing with this when it comes to impact and implementation, because uh, I would think that we've had, what, almost two years of a number of employees who have probably never seen the office, maybe not up to two years, but a, a year or two, where some people have become quite accustomed and settled into working in their home either every day or almost every day. The agency is going to have to deal with this transition. Uh, to any idea how they plan to do that? Are they just going to just you know immediately do this, or any plans on how to kind of ease people into this? What will be yeah, a change for them? About what I was talking about in the bargaining that we're in these discussions, there there's going to be basically two phases the way that it's uh, set up right now. And in the first phase, um, folks are going to be permitted to continue to telework. Um, to a maximum extent. Um, and if you, uh, you know, I think that they'll continue to waive the requirement to report in, but once you get from phase one to phase two, where you have full-blown return to work, then they're going to require uh, that, that teleworkers comply with the contract. In other words, they're going to have to report in Two, two days, if that's what their telework agreement says, that they can telework eight out of 10 days, they're gonna have to start reporting in. Um, so yeah, it's just gonna be, uh, it's gonna be another change. 
Duncan, anything uh, you want to add or ask before we leave this subject? Uh, no, I think, like I said, it's just one of those things where we really pushed hard for this, um, you know, and management, do as Ken so aptly put it, about the, uh, about the locality pay issue, said we cannot do that and we are not prepared to bargain that. So management would have to have a total change of heart. And unfortunately, I just don't see that happening <laughs> or management having a heart. Well, you know, not that anything good uh, comes from a pandemic that's, you know, been so horrific to the country. Um, but from a, from a, uh, from an NTEU standpoint and from a conditions of employment standpoint, one of the things that we got out of the pandemic was every customer service rep in the country who previously were, were, were told by WNI and SBSE for ACS sites that there was no way that they could be a frequent teleworker. Lo and behold, uh, they're now a frequent teleworker if they want to be because of the pandemic. So, you know, that's silver that. lining. <laughs> silver lining, exactly. That's what I was saying. It's silver lining. One last uh, subject before we uh, wrap this up for this podcast. And again, I want to emphasize we are recording this in the late afternoon, almost evening of Thursday, February 17th. Government funding runs out the following day, the following Friday after we record this. Uh, there seemed to be, at least a few days ago, a general agreement on a continuing resolution into March. Now certain members, I think of the Senate, if I remember correctly, are trying to put uh, add-ons or try to put something on that bill that is controversial and may not uh, make it easy to pass. I'm going to ask Doreen to start. Ken, you're welcome to chime in. Uh, what do we know about, the, at least at this moment, on the state of the continuing resolution to fund the government? Well, as you said, I mean, I'm, I'm watching the news like you, Larry. Um, we're hoping that they get this deal done. I mean, we heard that, you know, this that the parties were in agreement that they would do a short CR through, I think, March 11th is the date. Um, there's been some hiccups this last day. Um, some people trying to add some things on. I think some of it has to do with funding for some of um, the COVID activities. So, you know, it's going to depend on coming down to a vote and the parties. This is not nothing. This isn't anything new, I guess. We've been yeah. through this time and time again. I, I still have high hopes that, you know, both parties will come to agreement and get to um, a deal by tomorrow. And I'm very hopeful because we also heard reports that, you know, the continuing resolution that there were parties that have a deal for a budget after that so that the... Um, the March 11th date may just be kind of a, a placeholder that they can actually get this work done. Let's hope they get their work done, right? I mean, that's what they're there to do. And, and, and you know, IRS has enough going on. Employees shouldn't have to be worrying about, you know, the continuing resolution and, and losing their budget. So um, I don't have anything current right now to, to update you on, but I'm in the, the fingers crossed category right now, hoping they get it done. Uh, Duncan Giles, final comment question uh, from you. Uh, yeah, basically on the CR, we're just hoping that, um, as Doreen says, cooler heads prevail. They go ahead and get this done so they can. Uh, they, I've heard budget framework agreement has been in place between the parties. Hopefully they can get this done so we can get an actual budget and you know, hopefully get some proper funding so we can 
do even more hiring than we need to because Lord knows we need it, all the help we can get. I'm going to ask uh, first, uh, Ken, is there anything, you know, Duncan and I have tried to ask questions. We have just a couple of minutes left. Uh, anything you'd like to add before we finish this? Uh, no, I mean, I, I uh, ditto on the comments from Doreen and Duncan. I think everyone, you know, wants uh, the budget, the IRS to be able to get a budget. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of good can come from that in terms of the hiring. I mean, that's, that's what they need right now more than anything. Um, yeah, I, I don't have anything else to add. Uh, Doreen, anything you'd like to say before we finish this? Now, I would just like to thank you, Larry, thank Duncan, um, thank all your viewers or listeners. I, I will tell you, this has been a very, very difficult time for IRS employees, and I really commend them because they, throughout this whole pandemic, have worked their butts off, you know, delivering for the American taxpayers they always do, despite all the hurdles that have been, have been put in front of them. Um, they've done more with less since the 90s, and now, you know, they're doing amazing things with no resources. So my hat's off to them and for all the work they do. I want them to know NGU is aware of the hard work they do. We're fighting every day. They deserve applause. They deserve recognition. And ultimately, they deserve respect. And we're working very hard to get them the resources so they don't have to work as hard as they are and just go back to focusing on the regular mission. So thank you. Well, I want to thank uh, Doreen and... Uh... And, and uh, I just want to thank the people at the National NTEU because uh, you've been very, very, very uh, cooperative in bringing people in and, and talking to us on our, our local podcast. So to Ken and Doreen, thank you for taking time out of a very busy schedule to speak with us. And Duncan Giles, of course, thank you for being with us as well. Uh, just reminding everyone, you can find the Chapter 49 podcast if you want the video version on YouTube. Just search for Duncan Giles. There are several, but look at the one that uh, has the Chapter 49 podcast. It was the last several months, and we post all of our video versions there. If you're looking for the audio podcast, we're on most platforms where you find podcasts. There you just... Uh, uh, search for podcasts by Larry Lannan, L-A-N-N-A-N. You'll see all the different podcasts I produce. On that list, you'll see the Chapter 49 podcast. We thank you for watching and listening. Please be safe and be kind. Thank you.